morning and turning your Bibles to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. We'll be reading all of Jonah chapter 4 to conclude our series in this book. Let's pray. God, illumine our eyes to see the hard word and the word of grace in this text, that our hearts would be changed even but a little, changed for glory, changed for compassion to others. In Christ we pray, amen. This is Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from a disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, a month ago, I mentioned in a sermon, as I was working through Philemon, I mentioned that I was asked to mediate a conflict. I was asked to give some counsel regarding a conflict, a pretty important conflict. The conflict is back in Arizona with some former students of mine and has to do with the church of which one of these students remains a member, the other having left that church for other reasons. A marriage is at stake because the husband has sinned grievously and the wife is having a hard time moving forward together with him, with grace, with forgiveness, and with an eye to a full restoration of the marriage. And for our purposes here, we can call the husband Jack and the wife Jill. And the sad thing is that the sin, though it was serious, though it is serious, is actually not biblical grounds for divorce. And even if it were doesn't mean that she would have to pursue one. The sad thing is, 
both are believers. The sad thing is, the wife has endured her husband's sin pattern for a few years now. There have been months of peace, perhaps maybe a four or six-month period of peace, and then a brief but grievous fall into sin. And up until last month, the wife was nothing but kind, patient, gracious, forgiving, loving, bearing her husband's sin burden, and compassionately releasing him of his sin debt as he would regularly confess. But something changed. She began to listen to a few voices that told her enough is enough, that told her to cut ties with him. And the really sad thing is that these voices came from their pastor and their elders. They were saying, no more. Just divorce the guy. It's been the church's pastors and elders that have been driving the wedge between these two and even encouraged divorce when, as I had understood the matter, no ground for divorce was present. They were saying that because this man isn't, isn't entirely free of this particular sin, he must not be truly repentant. Apparently, you must be rid of that particular besetting sin in order to demonstrate real repentance. I hope you don't buy that perspective. That's a hard thing to deal with, and it's not biblical. All along, the husband has been showing godly signs of repentance, even as he struggles, even as he fights against this particular sin. But sadly, two weeks ago, I think it was the Friday or Saturday after Thanksgiving, the husband was served divorce papers. And unless God changes the hearts of this wife and the church leaders, this marriage will end. This is the kind of ruin that takes place when we are driven more by condemnation than by compassion. We see this in Jonah's life. We definitely see it in ours as well. What we need is to be reminded of God's abundant compassion, His full grace for all of us. In this final message, we see that the Father's compassion moves the true prophet to bring good news to all. And by examining Jonah's heart that is angry at God's compassion, surely we see our heart as well. Look at verse 2 with me again. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said? When I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In a most ironic and tragic sense, Jonah disobeys because of God's grace. Literally, verse 1 it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Literally, it says, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. What was exceedingly evil to Jonah? Well, look at the previous verse. They turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What was exceedingly evil to Jonah? God's relenting. Nineveh's repenting and God's relenting, that was exceedingly evil. 
It was too much for Jonah to handle. What we all should prize as a gift of abundant mercy is instead for Jonah cause for disobedience. So Jonah shoves an I told you so in God's face. You see, God, this is why I fled. This is why I made haste. I ran away from you as as fast as possible. This is why. Or you could say, you're why I fled. Your grace is why I ran away. That's hard, isn't it? Because normally we think we run to God because of his grace. And here Jonah is running away from God, away from Nineveh, because of the grace of God. Like Adam, who threw not only his wife under the bus, but God also, you recall his words, the woman you gave me. Like Adam, here Jonah is saying, you see, Lord, I was right to disobey you. I was right to run away from you. Shall Jonah go on sinning because God's grace abounds? For Jonah, yes, he thought so. And so consider how Jonah's prayer of frustration resonates with your own heart's posture from time to time. This is us sometimes, isn't it? You see, God, this is why I didn't reach out to my offender in love. They would just get away with the offense. I couldn't have it. You see, God, this is why I didn't pray for our relationship to get better. It was over. I was fine with it. I was moving on just fine without them. Now their repentance has put me in a hard spot. Do you not see that, God? That's what's going on, isn't it? We rationalize our disobedience because of God. We remain bitter, and we say, yes, we do well to be bitter because of God. That's what we saw with Naomi when she wanted to change her name to Mara, which means bitterness, because of God. And we saw, of course, that God's grace even changed her heart, made her pleasant, no longer bitter. Sometimes we refuse to forgive. Sometimes we refuse to be with other people And why? Because they repented and God relented, and that's too much for us. Consider the hard spot Jack put Jill in when Jack repented and God relented and God had forgiven Jack. Now what is Jill to do? You know, the whole thing would have been a a lot easier if Jack hadn't repented, and as our BCO says, he would have been contumacious and he would have been stubborn in his sin, And then he could have been left to justice. Then Jill wouldn't have to worry about forgiving him. Right? She could just say, he's an unrepentant man. Elders, you take care of him. I'll divorce him. But now he's repented. And God has relented. Now what is Jill to do? Forgive? Yes. Be compassionate? Absolutely. This is so counter to how we ought to be, isn't it? Why? Why do we act this way? Because we think that we deserve grace. Look at verse 6 and verse 9. 
Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Notice the connection. He was exceed, it was, the thing was exceedingly evil to Jonah. And now this plant, was, he made him, it made him exceedingly glad. He's very pleased. And what is, we have this little discomfort. The heat of the day, a little discomfort. As opposed to the national destruction that was going to come upon Nineveh if they didn't repent. But here he's worried about this little discomfort as he's waiting to find out what's going to happen to this city, just hoping, just praying that the Lord will burn it up. So he's exceedingly glad for this plant that God had given that he himself didn't plant. And then verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So we disobey because of God's grace, because we believe we're someone special. We believe that we're in a different category from all those, others, all those other offenders who end up repenting. We see ourselves either as deserving grace, or we see our problems as calling down for special pleading, which means our offenders bleeding. Jonah is an Israelite. He is a Hebrew who fears the Lord. He is one whose people have, not, have known his confession. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But it is salvation for Jonah. It is deliverance for Israel. It isn't, as far as he is concerned, for Nineveh. It isn't for all those other nations that have wreaked havoc on Israel. Or that might potentially rule over Israel. One commentator says, we see Jonah's violent hatred for God's grace to them. Jonah's spirit was relieved when the Lord rescued him by miraculous means. Jonah's body was relieved in the heat of the day by that providential plant. But Jonah would not tolerate either the spiritual or the physical relief for this Assyrian nation. Not on his watch. Not by his mouth. He wanted verse 2 all for himself. He wanted verse 2 all for Israel. He wanted nothing but death and destruction for Nineveh. Nothing but condemnation for all of those wicked doers. He loves verse 2 for himself. Oh God, be gracious to me. Oh God, be merciful to me. Oh God, be slow to anger with me. Oh God, abound in steadfast love for me. Oh God, relent from that disaster you intend for me. And at bottom, this attitude comes from the proud belief that we deserve the grace of God. We're different. In some, some way, our situation is different because of our biology, because of our work ethic, because of our skill set, whatever. We believe we are different. So we get the grace, and they don't. This is what Jill must remember as she thinks about Jack's sin. She doesn't need to excuse away the perverseness of his sin. She doesn't need to rationalize how, how his sin has harmed her in many ways, has broken their relationship in many ways. She doesn't need to ignore any of that. But she must remember how perverse her sin really is before God. 
how harmful to the holy purity of God's law her own sinful ways are, even if they are different from her husband's ways. And she must remember that there, but for the grace of God, goes she. And the same thing for all of us. We must remember that there, but for the grace of God, go we. The destruction intended for Nineveh would be our destruction eternally if God had not given us the grace to see our sin, to see him, to repent, and if God had not, by grace, relented of the disaster he intended for us. We are not any more special than any other offender who repents and comes to the Lord. We are both in the same category, the category of the graced ones, the ones who have been mercied, the ones who have been compassioned, the ones who have been loved with an everlasting love. But sometimes we don't emphasize that grace, that compassion. Sometimes we emphasize justice. We place justice over mercy, and that's because we are devoted to what we think we deserve. We want what we want, and we think that we deserve what we want. And so we, at times, emphasize justice over mercy. You see, God, or you see Jonah saying to God here, God, you're too soft. You're a softy. Have you ever heard that objection to the Old Testament God? You hear the opposite, don't you? In fact, there was an ancient heresy by Marcion. The heresy is called Marcionism. And this guy thought that there were two gods, that there was the Old Testament God, mean, nasty, vindictive God, the God of justice. He's just going to destroy and smite all of you. But there's this New Testament God, Son of God, Jesus, and he rescues us from this Old Testament mean God. Of course, that's not the biblical picture at all. You have one God, three persons, and you have justice and mercy in both Old Testament and New Testament. But that's not the picture that we have, that Jonah has of God. You're too soft. He uses God's beautiful attributes against God. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I know that's who you are. But I didn't want that for them. It would be one thing if God really were unjust. It would be one thing if Marcion really were right. But Jonah cites God's attributes as if they were a bad thing. But these are all good things, aren't they? Surely they were good for Jonah. Surely they are good for us. And remarkably, he is actually referencing Exodus 34, verse 6. This is a much-beloved Old Testament text. It's often quoted in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's very dear to the people of God. It says this, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And do you remember the context of that verse? Moses is making a new set of tablets. And why does he have to make a new set of tablets? 
He was acting as the Old Testament mediator between Israel and God because Israel had given herself over to idolatry while Moses was on Mount Sinai. He broke the tablets. And so what does God do? He cuts a covenant again with idolatrous Israel through Moses. He renews his grace with Israel. But here, Jonah does not want that rich history of God's covenant faithfulness that's been known by Israel for generations. He doesn't want that to be experienced by Nineveh. He doesn't want it even to start, much less renew. We don't want James's words about mercy triumphing over justice. We just want justice. We just demand justice. This is what Jack and Jill's church leadership sought for Jack or for Jill. Jack had run out of mercy. No more time for mercy for him. This is what our hearts demand at times, isn't it? Justice for us, mercy for us, and ruin for them. Give them all the wrath. Give us all the goods, all the grace. Give them the condemnation. Give us the compassion. And do you see the result of those who have been hardened by God's compassion? Jonah is happy to be angry. That is, he does well to be angry because he thinks he has a just cause. He does well to be angry. Two times the Lord asks Jonah if he does well to be angry. And the first time the Lord asks him, Jonah doesn't reply. And that's a good thing. Or at least he shouldn't have replied the way he does when he's asked a second time. But when he's pressed by God, he digs in, doesn't he? He says, of course I do well to be angry. Mine is a righteous anger, O Lord. And let us always affirm that there is such a thing as righteous anger. There is a category for righteous indignation, which we often see in the prophets, which Jesus exemplifies for us. There is a goodness to righteous anger. And let us always remember that Nineveh wasn't innocent, that Nineveh wasn't morally neutral before the Lord. There was a reason that the Lord was, had sent Jonah to proclaim destruction Nineveh had been storing up God's wrath for centuries. And so in one sense, Jonah has a point. He does have a righteous anger, doesn't he? At least the cause is righteous. Nineveh deserves death. But to Jonah, the Lord robbed Jonah and robbed Israel of what was rightfully theirs. So he thought. He was so sure that vengeance was his, that his prophetic word of judgment should have been the last word pronounced on a nation set ablaze by God. But of course, the fact that, jo- that, that God asks Jonah if Jonah does well should have tipped the prophet off. Just like a parent who asks his child if she does well to be angry. Note to you children, when your parent says, Is it okay that you're angry? Should you be angry right now? That's their way of saying, you really shouldn't be angry about this. You should probably reconsider. 
That's what God is saying to Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? You really don't do well to be angry. Please don't be stubborn, Jonah. You're not right to be angry. Have compassion. So angry because he thinks he has this just cause on his side, and he doesn't get it, and so he actually becomes depressed. We read verse 9, look back at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. His happiness eventually turns into sadness. Why does he devolve into a depression? Why does he enter into a sadness unto death? Why does he adopt a posture, take my life, and not in the way that we sing, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee? Not that. It's take my life, take me out of this world. I cannot handle what's going on here. I'm waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed, and I cannot fathom that they would be saved. Take my life. He's depressed because he demanded justice, and he didn't get it. His was supposed to be the voice that was to sound the death knell for the dying nation. But he didn't get what he thought he came for. He didn't get what he wanted. The one graciously carried along in the stomach of the great fish just couldn't stomach salvation for them. He was stubbornly depressed. Now, it is still too early to tell how this conflict with Jack and Jill would turn out, praying for reconciliation. But too often, when we want something, even a good thing like justice, a good thing like care or attention or love or greater faithfulness from a spouse, even when we want a good thing like that and don't get it, we might be tempted to burn in bitterness and anger until that person gets what we think should be coming to him, should be coming to her. And how do we respond to God? Sometimes, because we don't get what we think we deserve in that particular conflict, we yell at God. We complain that he must have forgotten that he is just. You're too, you're, you're too soft, God. Have you forgotten that you are also just, not just merciful? And have you forgotten, Father, that I'm in pain, that this is a great suffering, that I'm hurting too. Have you forgotten? Surely, God, you must have forgotten. Sometimes we approach God that way, don't we? Examine your heart to see where there is condemnation, not compassion. Where in your heart do you say to God about that person, about that family member, about that boss, about that coworker, about that nation, any of these things? Oh God, be gracious to me, but offer none to them. They don't deserve it. Oh God, show them no mercy. You saw what they did. You heard what they said. They don't deserve your mercy. Oh God, be quick. Be quick to spend your holy anger and all of it on them. Oh God, abound in justice and wrath. Let it rain upon them like a torrential thunderstorm. Oh God, do not relent from the disaster that you intend for them. You are the judge of all the earth. Do right right now. Sometimes you see your heart inclining to that action, to that posture, perhaps praying for that. 
for your offender. But mainly, if you think about this, Nineveh isn't primarily Jonah's offender. Nineveh is primarily the offender against God. And surely, if, if God can be compassionate to Nineveh, Jonah must also be compassionate. And that's how the book ends. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? There are 120,000 persons and also much cattle. And you're upset over a little plant that was here today and gone tomorrow. Their sin isn't against you, Jonah. Their sin is against me, and I'm being compassionate. Why won't you be? When we act this way, we lose sight of the fullness of grace, of God's grace. That God has a sovereign freedom to give grace. Look at verses... Oh, I just summarized verse 11, but look at... Well, I summarized verse 10 and 11. The, the plant. I'll read them. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? See, there, there's a connection here between... A literary one, anyways, uh, with... Abraham, as he intercedes for um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that? Like if, there are less, if there are fewer than 10 people righteous, then the Lord will spare. But there weren't. It was just Lot and his wife and some kids. There were, there were not more than 10. And if God was willing to spare a, a city with that few people, surely he's willing to spare a city here with 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, those who haven't been intentionally malicious like other Ninevites have been. A crucial mistake of Jonah's was that he forgot who was God. Not he forgot who God was. He knew who God was. He would get all the questions right. He'd get all the Jesus answers. I know you're a gracious God. I know that you're merciful. I know that you're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. I also know, God, that you're a just God. He knows God in that way. But he forgot the basic confession of the believer. God is God. I am not. And he also forgot that as God, salvation belongs to the Lord, not to Jonah, which is ironic because this is exactly what he confessed in Jonah chapter 2. Salvation belongs to the Lord. As long as I get a say into who gets to be saved, right? This is a hard word, isn't it? Because we're not talking really about Jonah. Yeah, we are talking about Jonah, but we're looking at our own hearts. And one way that the book of Jonah displays God's sovereign freedom to do whatever he wishes is to show how it was God who, quote, appointed events and people. In chapter 1, verse 17, it was the Lord who appointed the great fish to rescue the prophet, for which Jonah must have been thankful. 
It was the Lord, in chapter 4, verse 6, who appointed the plant to give his prophet shade. And we already saw that it was exceedingly glad to Jonah to have that plant during that difficult day. But it was also the Lord, in chapter 4, verse 7, who appointed the worm to attack the plant, to destroy the plant. And it was also the Lord, in chapter 4, verse 8, who appointed the east wind to beat down on Jonah's head. The Lord, through this book, shows that it is his to give and it is his to take away. And our Savior tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard to drive home this point as well. In Matthew chapter 20, there's a master of a house who went out to hire day laborers. One worker started at the third hour, another started at the sixth hour, another at the ninth hour. And at the end of the day, if you remember the story, they all got the agreed-upon denarius. They got a day's wage. But they were not the only workers in the vineyard that day. There were some who were hired at the 11th hour, which means they only had to work one day or one hour. And if, if, you, had be, if you had been in their beginning, surely you would have objected as they do in the parable Or we would have thought, well, if this guy gets a day's wage for working one hour, we, who have been working here for six, nine, 12 hours, surely we will get a lot more. But they don't. They get one denarius. They get a day's wage, which was the agreed-upon amount. But the point in that parable, Jesus says, is it is his to give. What is his? It's up to God to give what is God's. If God wants to give more than what this person deserves, that's his prerogative. And who are we to object? We shouldn't object because it's not ours ultimately to give. We are not the source of grace. We are not the dispensers of saving grace. God is the source of all grace. God is the source. He is the dispenser of all grace. We just transact it because God has given us infinite grace. It's not like grace comes from us that we had created, that we are sovereignly rulers over it, that we get to do with it what we want. That's not our prerogative. That's God's prerogative. It isn't, up, it isn't up to us to withhold grace from any and all who repent. If they repent and God relents of the eternal disaster due them, how can we insist on the justice of God's wrath to fall upon their heads? It already fell upon the head of Jesus. He already took all that condemnation away from them. Why then would we heap condemnation upon them? Sounds like double jeopardy to me. Did the offender come to Jesus later than you expected? Probably. But does that ultimately matter? Of course not. And so we say, so what, Jonah? So what? That the Ninevites came to the Lord at the 11th hour. By goodness, they came to the Lord. They repented, and God relented. Rejoice with the angels, Jonah as they rejoice over the conversion of one sinner. And so what, believer? 
that your offender confessed later than you wanted. They confessed. They repented. God relented. Praise God. It is God's to give compassion and grace. It is God's to give justice. But it is always ours to give compassion, to forgive. And we do not get to determine how far, how wide, how near, how narrow grace is to be extended. As we saw last time, when God has his sights of grace on a man, on a nation, he gets the man, he gets the nation. The Lord saved the king turning the heart of the king to himself. The Lord saved the people of Nineveh, directing their hearts upward. The Lord even showed compassionate care to the cattle, his creation. God showers his grace upon the Gentile, even those that some might call dogs, as Jesus did to the Syrophoenician woman. And moreover, in all of this, God still did not forget his own beloved prophet Jonah. And yes, here we get a taste of Jesus' words that the first will be last and the last will be first. That is, the Jew will be last and the Gentile will be first. But the Lord, and hear this, the Lord did not treat Jonah as Jonah wanted the Lord to treat Nineveh. Through all of this, the Lord God gave Jonah compassion, even despite his stubbornness, even despite his supposed righteous cause, even despite his depression, the Lord gave Jonah compassion. But he doesn't deserve it. Of course he doesn't. No one said he did. None of us deserves it. None of us deserves divine compassion. And yet God is gracious. God is abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. God is slow to anger. God relents from disaster. Even though Jonah was hired at the third hour, he was still given a denarius. Praise God for it. And so Jonah, if you were here, we would say rejoice with the angels that not only did one sinner repent, but a whole nation repented. And God relented of the disaster that was coming to them. And beloved saints of the Lord, renew your mind with truths of God's compassion. Jill could do a lot more considering her Savior's heart that is full of compassion for Jack and for her. We all could do a lot more considering Christ's fully affectionate heart toward us and toward others. And as we consider the compassion of Christ that compelled him to the cross, we might just find ourselves tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. So let it be. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are gracious, you are merciful, you are slow to anger, you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and we pray, O Lord, that we would appreciate that more and more, and that we likewise would extend grace, that our hearts would be more and more full of compassion for one another, praising you, when people repent, confess their sins, and come to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.